when I was doing triathlon, I would get a workout. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. No way. Now Tom tells me this workout and I'm like, you're crazy. I was like, but let's go for it. Let's try it, you know, because I don't care. I don't care if I fail. So I think that's a huge thing for people. It's like as soon as you step away from that fear of failing, you open yourself up to so many things. And for so long, that just held me back. I mean, because really, I mean, I, it's so cliche, but anything is possible, you know, and it's been a big lesson I've learned, you know, throughout this short little running journey I've done. And I'm going to carry that through the trials. I mean, do I think I'm going to make the Olympics? No. Do I think I can run the Olympic standard? Yeah, I do. And I'm not going to like tell myself I can't, you know. So that's going to be cool and exciting. And I'm going to carry that to Eugene. What's up, everyone? That was Lauren Hurley. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running through long-form conversations that are a bit different from the ones that you'll hear elsewhere. In addition to the podcast, I publish a weekly newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, where you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately. Subscribe today at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll start receiving it next week. Okay, my guest on this episode is Lauren Hurley, formerly Lauren Goss. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've known Lauren for a few years now. She's a friend of mine, and it's been super fun to watch her improvement in running from afar these past few months. She recently qualified for the Olympic trials at the Portland Track Festival, running 32.17 for 10,000 meters, finishing fifth in her first ever race on the track at any distance. And while Lauren might be new to racing on the track, she is not a novice athlete. She raced triathlon professionally for 10 years, winning 11 Ironman 70.3 events and numerous other races. She retired from that sport in 2019 after accepting a six-month suspension from USADA for testing positive for THC, a banned substance that was in the CBD cream she was using to treat an ankle injury at the time. In this conversation, we talked about Lauren's suspension and why, in retrospect, it ended up being the best thing that ever could have happened to her. Lauren told me about feeling burned out from her professional triathlon career and why she never thought she'd do another interval, much less compete, again. We discussed motherhood. She and her husband, Matt, have a 10-month-old son named Wilder and how that's reshaped her perspective on what's important in life. Lauren talked about growing up a swimmer, suffering from disordered eating in high school, and how finding running in triathlon in college helped her manage anxiety and get healthy. We also talked about competitiveness, entrepreneurship, how 10 years of high-level triathlon training has contributed to her current success in running, and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for supporting this episode of the podcast. In the coming weeks, I'll be highlighting different selections from the Fuel Cell line, which are their fastest shoes for any occasion, whether you're racing, working out, or just running hard for the hell of it. To kick things off, I want to tell you about the new Fuel Cell Rebel V2. It's my favorite new running shoe. Seriously, it's so fun to run in. 
I took them out of the box last week, ripped a workout in my first run in them, and now I am hooked. The best way I can describe the Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is lively. This shoe is super light, it's incredibly responsive, and it offers good protection underfoot. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I'll be using it all the time. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So, if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Okay, that's all I've got for you here at the top of the show. Let's get right into it with Lauren Hurley. I mean, we've had a number of, of conversations over the year, which we can get into over the course of of this one, but we're talking just a few days removed from your 32-17 up in Portland on the track, your first ever track race at any distance. How are you feeling right now? Um, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, a little sore from running 10,000 meters in spikes uh, before before the race, I'd only done two, three hundreds in the spikes ever in my life. So that was like a huge shock to the system. Um, but I'm super stoked. I'm super excited, uh, achieve something that I definitely didn't really believe I could. And, um, but also the crazy athlete in me is like, I'm a little disappointed. (laughs) Like there was a moment in that race where I got dropped and I, I keep replaying it in my head and, you know, but that's just, being an insane athlete, right? Like we're always, it's never enough. So, yeah. Well, take me to that moment. When was it specifically? Uh, it was like 7,000 meters in. I was running with Molly Sadal and uh, another girl, McKenna Myler. She's mm-hmm. going to be someone to watch, also a new mom. Um, and we were lapping people. And I... I was under, I thought they would move to lane two, but in this race, people just weren't moving over. And my coach, Tom Schwartz, he had told me before the race, he was like, you need to be looking ahead on the track if you're going to lap someone because they, they will surge. And if you're number three in line, you won't even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. I was number three in line. They were passing a group of three girls and all of a sudden they're surging. And I'm like, oh crap. And then I'm behind the other girls and like, whatever. Um, and at that point I really just didn't have the confidence to surge back up. So I just maintained my pace and, and, and I got the time and I knew I'd be fine, but I really wish I was in the mix to sprint for third place and like kind of feel that last 1200 change in pace, because I know mm-hmm. it's going to be like that at the trials. And, um, I definitely didn't go into that dark well that I probably should have the last 1200, but 
that's fine. <laughs> Do you think it was just due to your inexperience and not knowing how hard you could push at that point or when exactly you should push or was there something else that held you back there? I think it was inexperience and also like, you know, my PR in the 10K was 35.09. So I'm about to run a 32 minute 10K and I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't have confidence in myself. I was like, if I maintain this pace, I get the time. And I, I had four minutes, five seconds left for the last 1200. And in training, I've done 1200s under four minutes, like so many times. So I knew I had it, but I was like, oh, if I surge, I might cramp, I might blow up. I, I don't know what's going to happen. So I just played it cool. Uh, but I think when I get to trials, I don't really care. I've achieved my goal. So I'm going to just full send it. Like, you know, if I blow up, I blow up. <laughs> Well, and what's crazy is that this wasn't even a goal for you until very, very recently. We're going to talk extensively about your athletic background, but I know just from our conversations and, and full disclosure, Lauren's husband, Matt, is my wife's triathlon coach. I've known Lauren for the last few years. I mean, you just had a baby 10 months ago and... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I had asked you 10 months ago, would you be racing 10,000 meters on the track, much less chasing an Olympic trials qualifying time? What would you have told me? I would have said you're insane. <laughs> I mean, I never thought I could run. I honestly thought after the baby, I was done racing and I would never do a race again. I mean, maybe like a uh, stroller half marathon or whatnot. But the whole reason I got a coach is because my husband thought I was running too much after having the baby. And he's like, Hey, you need someone to kind of guide you. <laughs> and so, you know, I agreed to hire Tom Schwartz as my coach, but it was more of just, uh, to learn as a coach myself. Like I wanted to learn what he was doing a lot about his critical velocity methods and someone just to hold me back. So, um, definitely was never a goal ever. Uh, and it just kind of happened before you hired Tom at Matt's suggestion did you think that you were running too much uh mm, yes and no i mean probably a little too aggressively after having the baby but but you know i came from doing professional triathlon uh for 10 years training 25 hours a week so i didn't think running 75 minutes a day was anything crazy but i mean looking back i was running 10 miles a day every day for like three months and during my whole pregnancy, I ran eight miles every day until 35 weeks. So I am like, that is pretty crazy if you say it later on. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's dig into it a little bit. What was driving that, especially since you didn't have any competitive ambitions at the time? Um, I think, I, you know, I use exercise a lot as just uh, anxiety medication. Like mm -hmm. instead of taking, you know, that's how I handle anxiety. That's how I keep my mood kind of stable, um, as most, you know, endurance athletes, um, without that, I would go crazy. And I had so many changes in my life. I stopped racing professionally and then immediately I got pregnant. So like that one outlet I had was taken away from me. And so the goal of mine was to run eight miles a day for as long as I could through my pregnancy. And that was like my little victories. Like that was, Oh, I got another day, eight miles, you know, and I, eventually I was running 10 minute miles, but like, whatever, I didn't care. Um, and it was just the way I managed my transition from elite professional athlete to normal mom, you know what I mean? And 
those were the small goals I made, but I do think that huge base I built transferred over now mm-hmm. to where I'm at today. So we're certainly going to get into that. How hard was it for you when you hired Tom to give up some of that control to know that you'd probably be running a little bit less and then also to introduce some structure back into the equation, which you hadn't had since your professional triathlon days? Yeah. Um, I actually really liked it because I had someone telling me what to do. So I didn't have to decide on my own. Um, and I will say though, my biggest fear though, was doing like intervals. I, I never wanted to do an interval again. I was so burnt out from racing and sessions and the emotions, like riding the highs, riding the lows. I didn't want that anymore. I didn't want to be nervous anymore. I didn't want to be disappointed anymore. Um, and I, I actually didn't even want to feel that high of have, achieving a goal because as an elite athlete, you cross the line. I win a big Ironman 70.3 race. And like an hour later, I'm like depressed. It's this weird high and low of emotions in an endurance or in all sports, probably at the tippy end. And I, I didn't want to feel that anymore. I just wanted to be like, oh, I did my hour exercise. I never looked at my watch. Feel great. Um, and when I hired Tom, it was actually very hard to not get full obsessed again and to keep it casual, to keep drinking wine at night, right? Like to not obsessing over my workout when I got home. Like I, I really compartmentalized. Like I would do my training, then I'd come home and I'm full on mom. Like never thought about it again, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the hardest part with hiring a coach was keeping myself from getting obsessed and like really researching other runners and, you know, obsessing over the numbers and like all that. I I didn't do that this go around. I really didn't care. I was like, whatever, (laughs) you know, I have zero expectations and, um, I, and I'm learning about myself. I actually think I'm more successful with that kind of attitude and approach. Mm -hmm. In those initial conversations with Tom, when he was asking you about your goals in working together, what did you say to him? I said, Tom, I just kind of want to see what I can do. Um, I've always been a great runner. Uh, I know I haven't trained correctly in my triathlon career. Like, I don't think I ever really nailed that training. I always was going too hard on easy days. And now that I'm coaching, I've kind of learned a better way to train. And I knew Tom shared that philosophy. So I was like, I just want to see what I can do. And um, he had me run a mile or 1600 on the track and altitude. And I did 449 and he was like, you have a shot at making the Olympic trials. And he straight up told me that day two in February. I was like, no way. I was like, okay. And I rolled my eyes, you know, and never talked. We never talked about it again. Um, we just kept training. And then I did a 10 K on the road in April and I ran 33, 10. And originally I was going to try for the 5 K Um, but then I was like, Tom, I think the 10,000 is a better chance for me to make it. Uh, I think the 10, the 5,000 pace is just a little too hot. Like, I think I can get that time 15, 20 in about six months, but like, no way I don't have the speed right now. So together we just made that decision to change. And I kept canceling the race I was going to do. I was going to do a race in Kansas and I was going to do a race in LA. And then I was going to do a race. And then I finally did the race in Portland, but I kept canceling it because I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to race like racing. I'm just like, I just like, it was so jaded. Um, 
but I finally got my butt to Portland and on the start line. And I feel like that was the biggest achievement, just standing up and lining up to next to these women who are like very accomplished. I'm running behind a Olympic marathon qualifier and it's, it's just surreal. I'm just like, it was great. It was awesome. Let's go back to the Portland race. It was your first track event. So you're new to this sport, but you're not new to racing. For those unfamiliar with your athletic background, you've won, I don't know how many Ironman 70.3 races and other triathlons over the course of your professional career. So you've been in high pressure, high stakes environments. How did it compare to step onto the track in spikes for the first time, knowing that you're running against, I mean, some of the best women in the entire country, your first time out? I'd love to just get into your head a little bit. Yeah. So first the lead up, you know, it's pretty good. I would say the lead up to the race was like a triathlon, normal taper, feeling crappy, you know, like the, the normal things. Uh, but running is just so simple. There's no bikes, there's no like equipment, like it's just you and you. (laughs) And there's my, my top things I was nervous about running on the track was there's nowhere to hide. So I was like, if I get left, I'm going to feel so embarrassed. Like all these people that we emailed out the link to are watching. And like, it's not a triathlon where like you have a bad race and you just kind of float away, (laughs) you know, it's like the background. Yeah. Yeah. There's nowhere to hide. And that really stressed me out. But then I got to the track and, and, you know, it had a seven thirty start time and in, in, in the evening and I'm used to racing at 6am in the morning. So like, uh, I was really nervous also about what I was going to eat, but I had no issues there. Um, I emailed a, a friend of mine, Elise Cranny, who's a phenomenal athlete. I was like, what do you eat? Like, what do you do all day? And she told me, and I kind of just copied it exactly. Um, Dude, but the track is so cool. It's so much fun. You're so engaged the whole time. Like, there's no room for hesitation. And unlike a triathlon where your mind can just drift and you kind of daydream and it's a long day and whatever, it's like you're on every second. And it was so exciting. And um, it was, I mean, I hate to say this, but I, I really enjoyed it more than any triathlon I've ever done. Like, that was actually the best experience in a race I've ever had. Why? Um, I think because you're in contact the whole time. So it's like, you're actually racing like Mm -hmm. head to head and it's a lot of tactics. Um, and there's, I don't know, like the, the energy was awesome. I'm like running and like Shalane Flanagan's there, like giving splits and like, I mean, as like a fan, that was like really cool for me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. The people were a lot nicer (laughs) and, uh, I feel like their environment was a lot more relaxed, but the level of athletes there were, was so hot. So it, it was so cool to be in an environment with these very elite athletes um, who are, you know, a lot of them are going to make the Olympic team and medal even. And, and I'm just this mom showing up like running and I'm in the mix with that. And it was really special. Take me through the first mile or so. I'm watching the race on the link that you had sent out to a wide group of us who were interested in, in checking things out. I'm on text with your husband, our mutual friend, Levi Miller. We're watching you go through, and obviously we know that you would like to run under the trials qualifier of 32-25, but as you just described, you're like in the race. You've got all these other women like right around you. We notice that you're 
looking at your watch over and over again, like after every lap, like she's such a triathlete. Let's hope it's not GPS watch. Um, what was going through your head at the time? How were you splitting your attention between the pace that you were running, knowing that you wanted to go under 3225 and also being aware of what was going on around you so that you didn't get lost in the pack or blown out the back very quickly? Yeah. So only like three days before the race, I learned what a waterfall start was. I had no idea how we would start this race. So I'm standing on the start line and we had practiced starts with our little squad here in Boulder and every, we were doing 300s and I was like starting my watch at, at the gun and I was getting dropped. So I was like, okay, I can't start my watch. I'm going to have to start my watch on lap two. I'm not going to start my watch on lap one because I'm not going to get a good position. And my coach, Tom, he was like, it's so important you establish your position at the beginning of this race. Like, I don't care if you have to run too fast the first 200. You got to get in position. So my only goal was like, get in position. Don't run in lane two. <laughs> well, I ran in lane two a lot. <laughs> but um, so my mindset going into the race was, number one, get a good position. Number two, don't blow up that first mile. So I'm running, got a good position, and um, I'm expecting we're going to go through for the first 474, 75, because all I knew I needed to hold over 77s every lap, and I would get the time, because the I needed to hold 77, 8. So, you know, I assumed it would be fine. We go through 77, and I'm so stressed. I'm like, What? I thought the first like mile was supposed to be a little faster. So I have a little, you know, a little, little cushion. room to work with at the end there. And we went through the first lap at the pace I was supposed to hold the whole race. So right at that moment, I was like, oh God, it's going to be a long, long 25 laps. Um, but we settled in. We went through, I think, 508. Felt really good. And I, I mean, I literally stuck right behind Molly Seidel and like looked at her butt the whole time. And I just, she was a great person to run behind. I wanted to stay in the top five the whole race. And I did that um, a few times. Some girls tried to slot in and I would like go around outside and surge past them. And, you know, I definitely made some mistakes like watching the race or replay. Um, I lapped my watch every, every lap. <laughs> um, but that's what I needed my first experience. I never raced on the track before. Going to the trials, I'm going to change a lot of things. You know, I just, I was so intimidated by racing on the track. I really did not know what to expect. I trained with um, a guy who is like a four minute miler, and I trained with another girl who's like a 17, 35K runner. So I'm never really training with anyone my speed. So I'm never running behind anyone. Um, I didn't know if I was going to get kicked by spikes, like all these unknowns. And, uh, so I would say around 5K, we went through like 1610 and I was feeling settled in and I, I felt a little comfortable. It took 5K though. Did you get spiked at all? No, I didn't. Ah, oh, come on, Lauren. <laughs> you got no souvenirs from your first track race. You didn't do it right. No, but I did step on a um, hip sticker and I ran with that on the bottom of my spike for like 5K. So that was really annoying because I could hear it every oh, every time. Yeah. So you go through in 1610, you're running the pace that you need to run. When did you finally start to feel confident that you had this and you just needed to focus on racing and finishing as high as possible? Probably with only 1,200 to go. Mm -hmm. That's when I knew I had it. Um, and 
I would say from seven, 7,000 meters to about, you know, 80, 8,200 meters, I was actually like fading a little. And I was like, uh, I hope it was a decision I made in my head. I was like, do you want this or do you not want this? And I, it was a distinct moment for me where I had to decide, like, let's suffer a little bit more and you're going to get it. Or you can just lay off, you'll get a PR, you'll run under 33, but you're not getting the time. And I, I had to make that decision in the moment. And, um, I mean, that was very empowering that I made that decision and I stuck to it, you know, especially after getting dropped then. And then I was running by myself and there was a little headwind and, I was making all these excuses in my head. And then like, I was like, shut up, just run the time, you know? And, um, I just hung on and I kept it steady. I didn't pick it up or anything. And and like I said earlier, I wish I would have at least that last 800, like just seen what I could have done. But Mm -hmm. I was so stressed. I was going to like, I've seen so many triathlons where people like pass out like hundred meters for the finish line. And I was like, just hold steady, just get the time. That's all you came here to do. You know? So that's what I did. That moment you described a little while ago is one that I can certainly relate to. I think most people who've ever competed listening to this, regardless of of what level they're at, can certainly relate to. Were you worried going into the race that you would get to that moment having been there before and you wouldn't make the decision that you did to keep pushing? Yeah, I did because there's been a lot of times, even in triathlons, I've just been lazy and I've given up. And... uh. Yeah, I would say it because I didn't have just pressure from like sponsors or anyone. And I was already so far ahead of what I even thought I could be doing. It made that decision much more clear for me. I don't know why, you know, even now just talking about it. It's the first time I really talked about that. It's like, it made that like, yeah, I'm going for it like much easier because I didn't have all this noise in my head. It was like very clear. I wasn't like, well, what's Trek going to say? What's Hoka going to say? Like, you know, I'm like, I remember in triathlon, I was looking so far down the road. Like, am I going to get my contract next year? And really I'm just in this moment in the race where I'm like, okay, I need to decide what I'm going to do. Where in this running, it was just so clear. I was like, just do it. You know? And I was like, one more lap, one more lap. And I just kept hanging on. And, um, yeah, I came around. And then when, you know, I was like, when there's just four laps to go, you know, you can do it. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. Take me to that moment shortly after you cross the finish line. You obviously see the time, you know, you got the qualifier and it's one of the first races. I don't think it was the first, but one of the first races where you finish and your husband and young son are right there, which is something you never experienced in triathlon what was that like for you yeah so this was actually the first race um my son has ever seen me do uh and mario it was so special i texted i don't know who i was telling earlier today actually i was like this race was so different because i finished and like there was actually someone who cared like there's nothing worse than achieving this big goal and finishing this race and having no one to share that with um I would say I struggle with that a lot in triathlon. Like I was single, I was alone, my family didn't live there. So I would achieve this huge goal and then I'd come home and nobody, nobody to share it with, you know, and Mm -hmm. just to see the joy and the sacrifices, even Matt has made to help me pursue this little running goal I've had. Um, 
And just to see my son, like it, it was really special and it, it made it a lot more meaningful, I think. And, um, you know, even every lap they were on the sideline and I could hear my 10 month old screaming. <laughs> like it was really, it was really special. And also it was really special to see my 10 month old and to know a year ago I was pregnant and I can't believe how far I've come in a year. And I don't think I've given myself enough grace or like, you know, respected my body that much. Like, wow, I've done something really special. And it is a good, it's a good moment to share with other female athletes, you know, who are maybe putting off having kids or like whatever. It's like the body is so powerful. And it was, I, it was really emotional. And I would say I'm not really a, an emotional person, but for mm-hmm. me, that was, that was very special. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of the whole, you know, the whole package all together. My coach was there who told me I could do this crazy goal. I, I called bullshit at the beginning, you know, <laughs> and, you know, he was there to share that moment. And it was, it was great. So now you've got the trials on your schedule for later this month. How are you thinking about your running career? Let's call it that at this point, even though it's not a profession for you, like triathlon was, but you're going to be on the start line at the trials. Is that what your full focus is right now? Or have you started to allow yourself to think beyond that and what you might want to do next year or in the years to come? Um, well, I'm definitely keeping it casual. So, you know, look, we, there's not that much money in running. So I know this will probably never be a profession unless, you know, I have this crazy breakthrough race, but I really, I don't see myself at this moment, like really getting too much more, um, committed. Like I, I train nine hours a week. That's all I have my priorities are my business and my family and then running. So it's always going to be third. Um, and I like it like that. Like I'm, I, the two girls I was talking to them who beat me, they, they run 120 miles a week. I'm like, I run on 70 miles a week. That's all I have time to do. That's all I want to do. And you asked me this question now and that's still all I want to do. Mm-hmm. Like I definitely want to see how far I can go, but I'm just not interested in the hustle right now. Like, getting sponsors and, you know, having to do the social media game. I mean, maybe after the trials that will change, but ask me today and that's where I'm at. I have, you know, I don't want to train for a marathon. I'm really enjoying just short stuff, but I will continue racing. I'm going to do the peach tree 10 K July 4th. Um, and then continue doing road races for the rest of the year. So I'm definitely going to keep racing and, and we'll see what happens. You know, if I keep getting on this trajectory I'm on, like improving so much, then maybe that is a conversation, but I'm not going to like force it, if that makes sense. No, it, it does make sense. I mean, knowing you as I do and what you described earlier about the stresses of being a professional athlete when you were in triathlon, I mean, not having to deal with all of that now on some level is probably contributed to this breakthrough that you're having and being in a situation where it's not your livelihood, you have your own business outside of your own running almost allows it to occupy a better, more productive place in your life. Yeah. I'm not going to a race like, Oh, am I going to be able to pay my mortgage next month? Because I better perform, you know, and it's just, this is all a bonus right now. And it's so fun and it's playful and it's casual and, I, I will say being the, I don't want to even say dark horse, but like 
being a newbie, like not knowing anything is so awesome. It's, it's great. Like, you know, like I'm just, it's, it's, it's very refreshing and it's something I needed to fall in love with sport again because I was so burnt out, like so burnt out. And uh, you know, this is, this has made me love endurance sport again. Let's go down that road a little bit further. What have been some of the biggest learnings that you've had since beginning this journey in running? I've learned that um, you really don't need that much intensity to get much faster. And you don't, you know, I think a lot of people overdo it. Even in triathlon, when I was racing, I was going way too hard all the time. I was training so much. um, And I really wasn't racing that well. I have always struggled with sleep. And since quitting triathlon, I swear the first day I quit, I have slept amazing every night. That was a big hang up for me. So just during this running journey, I've learned how much sleep, nutrition, and balance can make you be successful. And I know that sounds simple. And um, I know everybody probably wants this nice scientific like secret, but it's so if you keep it simple and you you master those easy things to master, you really can get a big benefit. Um, and also just keep in my you know I run. I do two workouts a week and the rest of my runs are like eight minute pace. I mean, I run super easy and I just eat well. I don't diet. I don't have any weird vegan or dairy free or gluten free. I just eat what I want. Um, and I sleep probably nine hours a night. And I think that leads to success, to be honest. Tell me more about the balance side of the equation. Aside from having a family now and not having this be your profession in what other ways have you found a better balance in your life right now? Well, I will say, I mean, I'm not exercising that much. I don't do any gym. I don't do any strength work. I don't do mobility. I don't get massage. Like I don't have time for that. I run an hour to an hour and a half a day. My, and we make sure to do social things. Um, we make sure to do family things. Uh, we, we, we don't have a nanny. We don't have a babysitter. Like we raise our child, just Matt and I, uh, and we also coach 40 athletes and I think engaging with them has kind of kept me grounded. I, I see what crazy is, and, you know, I see what causes someone to have bad races. And I, now I'm on the other side of that coaching so I can see that. And so I feel like I'm more mature when, you know, I, I do get up for a race. Uh, but yeah, we're just not obsessing over sports anymore, you know, and that's, that's great. For so long, I identified as an athlete. Now and I, I identify as a mom. I mean, just to two weeks ago, Matt and I were still up two times a night with Wilder. I mean, I didn't think I haven't slept a whole night in like over a year until two weeks ago. So it's just been this, and it doesn't matter. You still get up and you do everything you need to do. It's just, you don't think anymore. Uh, and you don't overanalyze things, I guess. And, um, yeah, it's just allowed me to like really reach my full potential and not be scared of failing. I guess that's the big thing here. I'm no longer scared of failing. Whereas for 10 years racing triathlon, I was like so terrified of what would happen if I failed, you know, or, and now I don't care and I'm doing great. Yeah. I mean, and you've opened yourself up to possibility, which it doesn't 
sound like you were doing when triathlon was your main athletic focus? Yeah, no way. When I was doing triathlon, I would get a workout. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. No way. Now Tom tells me this workout and I'm like, you're crazy. I was like, but let's go for it. Let's try it, you know, because I don't care. I don't care if I fail. So I think that's a huge thing for people. It's like as soon as you step away from that fear of failing, you open yourself up to so many things. And for so long, that just held me back. I mean, and uh, because really, I mean, I, it's so cliche, but anything is possible, you know, and um, it's been a big lesson I've learned, you know, throughout this short little running journey I've done. And I'm going to carry that through the trials. I mean, do I think I'm going to make the Olympics? No. But do I think I can run the Olympic standard? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'm not going to like tell myself I can't, you know, so that's going to be cool and exciting. And I'm going to carry that to Eugene. Talk to me about your relationship with coach Tom Schwartz, who you've mentioned a few times during this conversation. You've only been working together for a few months at this point, but how integral has he been to the success that you're experiencing now? So very fortunate to work with Tom. Like I mentioned, um, Matt was a big fan of his and his critical velocity um, you know, training and how he does his programs. And so I just read, I, t- I sent him an email and he was like, yeah, I'll coach you be at the track at 3 PM in Niwot on Tuesday. I was like, okay. <laughs> and at the time he was coaching the 10 man elite and I knew they were this big running team. And, you know, I- I'll be honest, I-, I didn't really study running. So I-, I-, I didn't know who was on the team. I didn't know any of those people, but, uh, I showed up and like, there's all these like 25 year old guys. <laughs> and then it's like me <laughs> and I'm wearing like these old Pegasus. Cause I don't have any shoes. Um, you know, like Lulu living clothes, like whatever. I'm just definitely not a runner. I didn't. And you know, that was intimidating to train with them for a little bit. Um, but, you know, they've parted ways since. And so now Tom is just focused on a smaller crew. So there's just three or four of us. And, he comes to every single workout. He drives 30 minutes twice a week each way to come watch us do track. Um, he's super hands-on. He's super involved, super smart. And But, you know, with Tom, I, I, I do have to credit a lot of my success. It's not the training. It's not the workouts. He watches me run and, like, gives me feedback on, like, what I need to be thinking about, how I need to run the curves, how do I need to do my arms, how do I need to lean differently, you know, how do I need to increase or decrease my ground contact time? So it's been those things and him having his eyes on me that I'm going to have to give most of the credit to for this track success because um, the workouts are just workouts. But it, it was having him there and, and, and his confidence in me and was like, hey, I really think you can do it, do this. And knowing he's worked with so many great runners, I, I knew he wasn't like he wasn't lying. You know, I trusted him and I trusted him 100%. I never questioned any of his coaching and he got me, you know, injury free and an Olympic trials time in, in three months. So I was just talking to him today at our workout. He was like, I can't believe like how fast you improved. Like it's crazy. Um, so, you know, having him has been, has been really special in his commitment to us and, um, showing up every day. It's like, when you have a coach who cares and shows up, you also want to show up. And, you know, Mario, my, the 
the only person I was scared of disappointing in the 10K last week was Tom. I was like, I don't care if I don't get the time, but Tom's going to be so disappointed. <laughs> so I was like, that was the only person I like really, I feel like I was like fighting out there for. Why was that? Uh, because he's invested a lot in me and he really believed in me and he was so excited. And I, I, I mean, I tell you, like he drives out to me every twice a week to coach me because he knows I can't go there because you know I have the baby right and it's just he's invested a lot in me and uh yeah I didn't want to let him down I guess and I wanted him to know that his his coaching is working because now I'm also a coach and I know that feeling I get when my athletes do really well um it's a little validation and a little win for me too and so I wanted him to feel that as well because this was a team kind of effort together it wasn't me it wasn't him we both committed 100 percent to do this. And, uh, when you achieve something like that, like there's, there's no other better feeling as a coach slash athlete. What have you been able to take away from your relationship with Tom that you've been able to apply to your own coaching that has helped you strengthen your relationships with your own athletes, many of whom you're coaching virtually? Yeah. So I think he gives me a lot of key things to visualize and think about. Um, and also how I should feel when running, right? Like, so it's, he's like, we're, he's not a very big on like times. So if we're on the track and it's windy or if it's super hot, he's like, don't look at your splits. You need to, you need to be in touch with your body and feel these feelings, feel when you're building lactate, feel when you need to back off, you know? And, and when you start fatiguing, you need to do your arms differently. You need to increase your cadence, like all these type of kind of body cues, I guess. Um, so I've started kind of doing that with my athletes as well, even though they're virtual, just things to think about when their form does start falling apart, or if it's a windy day or how to run into a headwind, how to run into a tailwind, how to run downhill, how to run uphill. Like these are things I never knew. And, um, just learning the sport of track and field has been awesome. Like you run curves differently than you run straights. Like you, your form is different when you sprint versus when you're doing endurance, like all these things, I had no idea at all. <laughs> and so that's been super fun. And I've been kind of working with my athletes too, to kind of learn the sport of running, not triathlon. Mm -hmm. So that's been super helpful. As you've gotten deeper into the sport of running yourself, have you become more of a fan of the sport and more aware of what's going on, especially at the elite level? Oh yeah. I've been like doing my Googles. I run on the treadmill and watch like Shelby Houlihan. <laughs> She's my favorite. Just, and watching kind of learning the sport. Tom's like, you need to go watch 10 K's and five K's and watch how they run in a group, right? Watch how their form changes the last mile. Watch how they do their sprints, watch the tactics. And I've been learning and watching. And, um, I just watched the five K Olympic trials with Kim Conley, how she like makes the team and she out of nowhere, you know, and it's kind of cool just learning and um, studying, but it's also another layer to all of this running on the track is like, is like, uh, it's, it's, um, it's like studying, I guess. Like, it's not just running, 
it's tactics and it's knowing how to run on the track and not running in lane two, right? Like, and, and knowing how to get your position. And these are things I have no idea on and I'm still learning. And um, that's why I'm confident I can run a little faster at trials because I was so blind this last time. And just from that one race, I've learned so many things. I mean, you don't want to come back to your phone after the 10K at the trials with 25 texts from me and Levi telling you to get on the rail. <laughs> or stop looking at your watch. <laughs> I'm not wearing a watch in trials. You'll be happy. <laughs> Let's take a hard pivot and rewind to 2019. You were a professional triathlete and you were on your way to a race in South America. I was actually on my way to your house to stay there with your husband for a few days. And he had to go to the airport and pick you up. Take me through that experience. Yeah, so 2019, July. I believe it was like July 4th weekend. Mm -hmm. um, I was on my race to race in Ecuador, uh, a race I had won the previous two years. So I was like the reigning champion. It was pretty exciting for me. It was going to be a big payday um, and money I was counting on, obviously, because this was my full-time job. And I got a email that I had a positive sample um, from Escape from Alcatraz, a race I had done a few weeks earlier. And so I'm freaking out because I'm like, I don't take medication. I don't take supplements. I don't know what this is from. And then obviously it was, it was from THC. And I was like, I guess the heart, I was like, what's my mom going to say? <laughs> that was my first thought when I got my email for that. And then I was just like gutted. I was like, I, all of a sudden I felt really dirty and I was like, Oh, I'm guilty. Like I'm a doper. This is insane. But also on the flip side, I know I was like, hadn't done anything wrong. I don't smoke marijuana. I was like, where did I go wrong? And I had been using a THC cream for an injury that had a significant amount of THC. And that was, um, that was my fault, right? Like I didn't think anything of it. I didn't even I honestly didn't even know if THC was illegal substance, but you know, I chose to use that product. I own that. And I had a positive sample. And so I was suspended from triathlon for six months. I lost all my sponsors. And at that time I was probably making a hundred K a year from sponsorship. So like in one day I basically lost a hundred thousand dollar salary. Um, and I wasn't going to be able to race in world championships. You know, my season was over. And honestly, my career was over unless I really wanted to fight back. Uh, so I flew home, reset. And Mario, now looking back, it was honestly the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, I don't think I would have walked away from triathlon for a few more years. I was making great money. I was getting faster. But I hated it. I was so miserable. And now that I'm out of triathlon, I'm like, wow, I was really miserable. Like, I was over it. Um, but I, like I said, I wouldn't have walked away. So instead I got married, I had a baby, I started my own business and now I'm getting back into running and yeah, I still have people who like bring that up often, you know, and I still have the haters. Um, but I, I'm very comfortable with it now. I, you know, I own it. I accepted it. I paid my dues. I did my six months suspension and you know, I, and now I'm coming back to running and, um, 
again, it's felt really empowering to kind of put that behind me. And I, and now I can kind of finish on my own terms. Yeah. I'm not in triathlon, but that wasn't the end of my story. And now I'm going to come back into running and do whatever I end up doing, um, and kind of go out on my own terms. So that gives me peace and also motivates me a little bit more to actually see what I can do in running. You mentioned how, when the suspension came down, your sponsors left you. What was the response like from most of the triathlon community? Peers that you raced with and against and just others in general? I would say 85% of people were felt bad for me, you know, because we all know marijuana is not performance enhancing. And also I wasn't even using marijuana. I had a cream that I was treating an injury for. Um, and the reason I was so stressed to get my injury healed is because sponsors are like, if you don't race, you don't get paid. So it's this whole like vicious cycle, vicious cycle. And yeah, I probably shouldn't use that cream. Like, yeah, that was on me, but like that, that merry-go-round, like that same, like sponsors telling you to do this. And then it's just, you have an injury and then you keep training because you have to race, but it's this vicious cycle. And like, it it kept going and going. And yeah, my sponsors, like they, I don't want to throw them under the bus. I mean, like, they're like, we have to drop you. It would look really bad for our brand, you know? And that was basically the gist of all of them. I had a few that would stick by me, but they weren't the high paying sponsors. So I, I had no choice. I had to leave the sport. I couldn't afford to do it. Um, but I, yeah, I would say 85% of people were like, that sucks. That's BS. I can't believe that. Um, and then, you know, of course you have your, the people that were, you deserve that. Like, you know, the 15% of the haters and so that's fine. You know, like whatever, I'll take it. I did it. Um, but I would say the overall general, like population of my followers or whatnot were definitely in support of me. And that did feel good. What did your mom say? You know, my mom was like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Why'd you use that cream? But then she was like, you've been so unhappy in triathlon and we're so tired of it. And we're so ready for you to start a family. So we're so happy. (laughs) Wow. It was that obvious to those who were closest to you at the time, how much of a drain triathlon had just been on your overall well-being. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like I was a monster. I mean, even looking back, talking to my husband, he's like, you were a monster. You were depressed. You were so miserable. And, um, yeah, I was, you know, so my mom, my family was actually super happy that that chapter was closed. And I mean, I I love my mom, but when I told her I was starting to run and I was going to do this race, she was like, Oh, really? (laughs) You're getting back into sports, (laughs) you know? And because but can you blame her on one hand? No, I mean, I would be that going home for Christmas, mom, I need to go to the pool. You know, I, I can't eat this. I have to run. I, you know, like my, my weight, I have to like, you know, I was crazy. I wasn't enjoyable to be around at all. And so I think she was nervous that I would get sucked back into that cycle of, you know, not sleeping again, being unhappy, but, um, I do think she's seen this other side that I don't, you know, I have no expectations and this is really just for fun. And, uh, it is different this time around. When your sponsors left you and you knew that your triathlon career was over, you and Matt decided to start your family, but how were you thinking about a career at that point? Did you have 
any idea what you would do professionally to make a living or were you just committed to try and figure it out? So at the time that was at purple patch and that was a, that's a big triathlon, uh, coaching company out of San Francisco. And he was making enough money to kind of support our family. So the, the plan at that time was I'm going to have a baby and be the housewife <laughs> and you're going to still work at purple patch and support us. Um, and it was going to work. We weren't going to, we were going to be barely getting by, but we were going to get by until I figured out what I was going to do. And I thought maybe I would go into medical sales or something like that. I had a degree in biology. I had some good connections. Um, but then I started coaching a few people on the side and I really found joy in it. Like I found more joy in coaching than I did competing myself. Uh, I had an athlete win an overall race in Hawaii and the joy I had was just insane. I was like, wow, I'm addicted to this. I want to keep coaching. Like, I love it. I love changing people's lives. Like, you know, and then I had an athlete win Ironman Cosimo and he was like, Lauren, that was my lifelong dream. And he called me crying. And I was just like, wow, like how cool this is to serve other people. You know, like it was amazing. So then at that moment I was like, I want to do coaching. I think that's my calling. I want to share my experiences and the things I've learned from racing for 10 years around the world, you know, with these people who want to achieve goals, especially athletes who are kind of on that pointy end of it, right? The elite level amateur athletes. Um, that was really my calling. And, and so Matt walked away from purple patch and we joined our, we joined forces <laughs> and, uh, now we have a very successful triathlon coaching company. And, you know, we're also able to raise our son and we don't even feel like we work. Like it's really fun, you know, as you can, um, relate to coaching is, is awesome. And so that's what we're doing now and for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, but another lesson though, is like, you just figure it out. You know, when I got that email that I was got, I had a drug violation. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but you just figure it out. And, and it's the same as being a mom, you figure it out. And it's the same as trying to run semi-professionally and be a mom and run your business with no family or no help. You just figure it out. You just do it, you know? And, um, we're capable of a lot more than we think we are. During your professional triathlon career, had you started to think about what the next steps would look like for you when it eventually came to an end as far as what you would do professionally? Yeah. Um, I had a resume. <laughs> I still have the resume in my email sitting there from like four years ago. <laughs> but like I said, I thought I, I thought I would do something like medical sales. I would definitely... I was very good at talking with people like, because I've always had to do that with sponsors. So I definitely wanted a job. I needed to make connections, engage with people, um, kind of like a commission based type job. I, I, that I wanted that because I've always been performance kind of, um, motivated. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want a job where I just got the same salary every day, showed up nine to five. Like I definitely wanted something where I was engaging with people making relationships and having and getting paid based off that. Right. So I thought I would do sales, some type of sales, medical sales, some type of sales. That's the route I was looking to go down. Um, you know, but now I'm coaching, which it's not sales, but it is building relationships and you do get more clients based off 
how well you do with other clients, you know? So, um, it's kind of that sales route, I guess still, but Mm -hmm. it's in a, it's in a field that I'm obsessed with and I feel like I'm not an expert, but pretty knowledgeable at, um, and I also feel like I'm different than most coaches because I know how things feel. Like I know how it feels to be nervous the night before and not being able to sleep. And like, you know, you've trained so hard, like, and I, I know how to talk my athletes kind of off the ledge and I have empathy for them because I've been there and I've done it. And like, I know what it feels like to have a bad race and like exactly how they're feeling in that moment, you know? And I feel like I can share, you know, my experiences with them and it's, that feels good for me and I know it helps my athletes a lot. Where does that performance motivation that you described come from? Well, I'm super competitive. Uh, and in everything that you do, everything. Yeah. Our, my, our marriage counselors, like everything's not a competition, Lauren, (laughs) You (laughs) you know, like in everything. And I have to catch myself. Like, you know, like even like, oh, I made dinner better tonight, Matt, than you made it last time. <laughs> like stupid crap like that. I got it. I'm just really competitive and I'm really, I have high expectations for myself. So like, that's what, that just drives me. And it's, I would say it's, it's, it's made me be successful, but it's also like, you know, been kind of my downfall you know, so I get a little too obsessed. I I chase it too hard. And that's with running. I'm really trying to pump the brakes here and not get too competitive and not, you know, I have to find myself often just Lauren, like, like take a step back, you know, it's okay. You know? And, and that also like keeps me there. He's like, you know, you don't want to get too obsessed. Be careful, be careful. So that's really my only um, reservation with running is I just don't want to get too caught up in it. When did you first realize or come to accept that that competitiveness could be a detriment? I think when I got sponsors, I started uh, making pretty good money in the sport. And um, I got really competitive with who my sponsors were, how much money I was making, what races do I have to do? We like, what races can I go to and win? Because then I'll make more money. It was, it, it was kind of like that. And then it drove myself to like insomnia, Mario, for years. Mm-hmm. I could not sleep. Like I had a real, I would go like five days without sleeping. And I know it sounds insane, but like I got to a, a very low and I was like, I don't think I can continue this. I one time was at a race in Florida. I called my mom. I'm 30 years old. And I'm like, mom, I think you need to come to Florida because I can't sleep. And I'm like literally having a panic attack. And it's because I put all this like competitive, like drive on me. And I, you know, like I had all this pressure to like do so great. So I could continue moving up that, that ladder I I set for myself, you know, instead of just taking the punches as they came and and making the best of it. And, um, it was like a obsession and like a, I don't know, like a illness. And it's, I think that's also why I'm so happy. I'm not doing triathlon anymore because that, all just like went away overnight. Mm -hmm. It's like that email I got from USADA. Yeah. It was so stressful and disappointing, but it was also this like huge relief. Like I don't have to do this anymore. I'm so happy. Aside from not 
pursuing triathlon anymore. In what other ways have you worked on yourself to keep it in check from a competitive standpoint? Um, okay. Well, I've started, you know, full disclosure, I started getting therapy and I don't, I don't look at myself now or base my self-worth on like how much money I'm making or, um, what my, my performance goals are, you know, how I do in a race, like no longer do I look at myself and, and, and the mirror and like feel shameful because I had a bad day at a race or, you know, I'm not, I don't have any money from sponsors. And maybe that's because we grew up, I grew up kind of poor. So like being successful and making money was always this huge dream of mine because we didn't really have that much money growing up. Um, so it was a big bullet point for me. Uh, but no longer do I like define myself by that or like, I, I, now I've, I've shifted that mindset to like, Hey, I just, I want to be time rich. I, I want to have time and I'm going to make enough money to do the things I want to do, but no longer do I care about that stuff. Um, I'm not a, I don't identify now as an athlete, whereas before I identified as an athlete. So if I had a bad race, all of a sudden my self-worth was zero, you know, like nothing. I, d- I want to show up as a good wife. I want to show up as a good daughter. I want to show up as a good mom, a good friend. And when I do those things, I'm also a phenomenal athlete. And I didn't know that when I was doing triathlon, I was a crappy daughter. I was so like rude to like my family. Like I wasn't a great friend, you know, like I wasn't a great girlfriend. And, but I, all I cared about was being an athlete. And now I've kind of changed what's important. And all of a sudden I'm a better athlete because I, I don't identify as one anymore. When you came to that realization, did you go back to the people in your life, your family? I mean, Matt, who's your husband, and apologize or at least acknowledge that you weren't the best version of yourself during that period of time? Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say I apologize, Mario, (laughs) but I did admit, hey, mom, like, wow, like, I can't believe you guys dealt with me or welcomed me home so much. I was a monster, you know, and even to Matt and Matt and I even talk now, we're like, I don't think we would have gotten married if you would have continued racing triathlon. Like, I don't think we would have lasted another year. And I, I can say that now because I actually agree with it. I did not like who I was and I didn't like who the sport made me. I didn't like who that competitive, crazy person made me or like the sponsors down your throat kind of made me. I hated it. And, but when you're in it, that's all, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what you have to do to be successful. And I didn't want to be there anymore. And, um, you know, now I have a much better relationship with my family. I have so many more friends. Um, Matt and I's relationship's amazing. It's just, it's crazy. You know, sport is so selfish. So when you kind of jump out of that and you don't make it about sport anymore, it's, it's been interesting to see I've actually become a better athlete, mm-hmm. but that's a hard thing that was forced on me by that, by that, uh, USADA violation. Like if that didn't happen, I'd still be in that cycle hundred percent. And life wouldn't be as full as it is now. No, I probably never would have got married. Like no one would have married me. I was crazy. You know, like wouldn't have a kid. I would still be just doing triathlon, winning races and coming home to like no one. And, and it's, you know, like, again, I'll say it again, that USADA violation was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
And it's funny how that works out. I had a feeling at the time, we talked a lot that weekend when you flew home to Boulder. We went for a run on Magnolia Road about how it could end up being a blessing in disguise. Not that you had any idea where it was going to take you, but even then, as devastated as you were to get that email, a day or two later, you I didn't even know you that well at the time. You could sense the relief that you didn't have to go to this race. Yes, you were losing a payday, but you almost seemed happier to just be home for once and do normal things for a weekend. Yeah, and enjoy my time with um, you guys and like, you know, not be thinking about the next race or the workout. Like, you know, for 10 years, I was thinking I couldn't do social things. I couldn't eat what I wanted. I had to be on the stupid schedule. I had to please sponsors. I had to post the photos on Instagram and I could actually for once live my own life and do what I wanted to do and do what was important to me. And, you know, now I'm getting older and whatever, like I'm realizing what's really important and how selfish you have to really be to, when you're in these athletics. Right. And that's why you asked me, are you going to pursue running? And I'm like, no way. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if it gets me there, cool, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not going to ever put sports first ever again in my life. Let's rewind to growing up in South Carolina. When did sports first come into your life? Uh, I started swimming like three years old. I was on competitive, you know, swim team at eight and I swam through high school um, but then I quit because I was a little burnt out. Um, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I went to college. I did no sports. I joined a sorority and, um, I, I started running a little bit just to like keep the freshman 15 off. <laughs> and I joined the triathlon team in my senior year of college because I had a boyfriend who did triathlons and he was like, you should do triathlons. I think you'd be good. And I was like, okay. And so, um, yeah, I started doing triathlon in 2009 and immediately became a pro and kind of did that, you know, until I was 31 years old. Uh, so I will say I've also, that's been my whole kind of adulthood has been sports. Like I haven't known anything else. So now I'm in this new world of, oh, it's not about me all the time. It's not about sports all the time. And it's really nice because I've never really been to this place. Mm-hmm. How did you burn out on swimming? Or why did you burn out on swimming? Um, well, I'll just be honest. I had an eating disorder at 15 years old. I got super skinny and I got super slow. So that was it. I mean, I was like too slow. And the eating disorder kind of took over my life. And when I went to college, I, you know, I got better. Um, but that's kind of why I stopped swimming just full disclosure. I wasn't fast enough anymore to like swim at college where I was on this trajectory to swim in college and I was going to be great. And I was a distance swimmer and Mm -hmm. I was, you know, going to get a scholarship and like, you know, this kind of derailed my swimming career. Did you get help for the eating disorder when you were in high school? No, I didn't. I kind of ended that on my own. Like, um, my parents were like super involved. Like they took my car away. They, I had zero freedom. I had zero, I didn't have a door on the bathroom, like craziness, you know? And I just kind of got to this point where I was like, my mom is like, you, you're not going to be able to go back to college unless you 
you fix this. And mm-hmm. I did it on my own. And you know what, Mario, the, I did it because I started running and running made me feel good. It made me feel like I was okay. If I ate, you know, like I felt fit, but I feel like running was my help for that eating disorder. So changed one obsession to another. (laughs) That's super interesting because I could easily see it going the other way where getting deeply involved into running after being deeply involved in swimming could bring back some of those same feelings and send you down a similar road. Yeah, no, I think the running was still new to me. Like, and I just felt good about myself. And so it kind of like saved me. Um, But I will credit like now I've never had an injury ever. And I credit that to eating. Like, you know, I've never been crazy with like my food. I always eat enough, like never counted calories. And because I've seen that, how it's taken something away from me in the past. So, you know, I know how dangerous that is. And I've like never even let myself get there. Let's expand upon that. What advice would you give to young high school girls, whether they're involved in swimming, running, or no sports at all who are struggling with disordered eating? Yeah, it's it's definitely a way to manage stress or anxiety. Um, I've always been kind of an anxious person. And, and look, like I'm not going to lie, I still am, right? But I'm managing that in a healthy way with exercise. So I think, you know, people that struggle with that, you have to find an outlet. Like it's not just going to go away. So I transferred my eating disorder to running, right? I took that up. I took sports up. Then I got to triathlon. Like I filled that. Just like an addict would, right? Mm-hmm. You see all these addicts get in involved in endurance sport because that's their new outlet. Um, so I, I mean, and when you're young, you don't know this, but having disordered eating can really not set you up for a good life. Like if you want to have kids, you might not be able to have kids. I lost my period. Like it really messes you up later on down the line. And I think having a healthy relationship with food. And if that means you want to eat super clean, like that's fine, you know, but you have to find an outlet to kind of manage that anxiety. So like, and you need to find out why you have the eating disorder. Why do I feel like I need this control? What's going on in my life? And I kind of figured that out and then I channeled it to running. So, um, you know, I do think also, just looking down the road to like your future, if you want to have a abled body and able to have kids, like you just have to let it go. But it look, it's something really hard. My best friend from high school, she she's thirty three years old now. She still has a eating disorder. Like it's something really hard to kick, and and um, it's super serious. So reach out for help. I mean, that's the best thing you can do. I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, as someone who has suffered from disordered eating myself, and it wasn't until I was out of college and trying to pursue professional running, oddly enough, that I experienced a lot of what you're describing. It was a way to have control over my own situation. It felt like a secret that I could keep to myself. It helped me manage some anxieties that I had. Um, And quite honestly, it it messed me up, even at that age. Um, Just my body and various things in my mind. And, and it was overcoming that, that opened doors to possibilities. And I know there are a lot of people listening to this who, whether they're in high school, college, or beyond, certainly resonate with that story. So I appreciate you sharing it because I think it's going to be very helpful to some people who are listening to this podcast. 
Of course. And look, and being skinny, it doesn't mean like you're fast. I was running in the race in Portland and I was the biggest person on the start line <laughs> and I was okay with that. Like, you know, like I don't think of myself as big as all, but I've just learned not to compare to other people and, mm-hmm. you know, we're all in our own phase of life. And, but I mean, look, that stuff's really hard to deal with and you got to just ask for help. Fast forwarding back to triathlon, you mentioned how you joined the triathlon team in college. You had a boyfriend who was doing it. You turned pro pretty quickly. What told you that you could be a pro or that you should turn pro so early on in your triathlon pursuit? Yeah. So there was a collegiate national championships in college. They still have it. Uh, and I placed high enough to be invited to the Olympic training center to be recruited for the Olympics. It's like, as like a collegiate hopeful, you Mm -hmm. know, and they agreed to pay for my races that first year to kind of see how I would do, you know, and send me to the world championships and, and whatnot. So to me, um, my plans were to go to PA school, which is a physician assistant school, like medical school. That was my plan. And I told my parents, I go, mom, I'm going to take one year off after undergrad. I'm going to go do this triathlon thing. They're paying for everything. So it's not going to cost me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to go to school. So I'm just going to do it for one year because I was like, if I don't do it, I'd be really sad. I'd always wonder and you know, whatnot. And then I said, but if I make $10,000 this year in prize money, I'm going to do it one more year. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I achieved that goal of making $10,000. And then the next year I was like, okay, if I make $20,000, I'm going to continue. And so every year I set these financial goals and again, comes back to my obsession with making money and making a living, right? Mm-hmm. It's all the same, but I will say, I do see these triathletes now who want to be professional, but they, they don't make any money. And I do credit myself for my whole career. I was like, I'm making a living doing this or I'm not doing it. And so every year I had a financial goal and I kept reaching that. So I kept continue going, you know, and by the end, um, I was making a really good living. So, uh, for me, I became a professional so quickly because I wanted to do the ITU type racing in pursuit of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And so at that, you had to be a professional to do those races. And I had qualified to get my professional license. So like, I just did it. I wasn't in it just to do it. I was like, I'm either doing this or I'm not doing it. (laughs) So it wasn't like self-exploration or just trying new sports. Like once you showed some promise in it, you were like, okay, this is my ticket to not having to get a real job and sounds way more fun than having to go that route. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I didn't want to get a real job, but I was like, Oh, this is cool. USA triathlons flying me to Budapest and they're paying for it. Like how cool. And then they're flying me to Lima, Peru. How cool. So I was like, I'm going to do this as long as I don't have to pay for it. So a travel for free and B, maybe I'll make the Olympic team. You know, I was like, let's just see. And then I had a coach, um, in 2012, he was like, Hey Lauren, if you ever want to make a career out of this and actually make money, you got to go to non-draft racing. You got to go to long distance racing. That's the only way you're going to make money in the sport. And at that time I was like, then I was like a little entrepreneur. I was like, 
it was comical to me that maybe this could be a job. Wow. You know, and then I think that fueled me through my whole career. I'm like, wow, I'm like running around in my bathing suit, traveling the world on someone else's dime and I'm making a living. Like this is insane, you know, and it fueled me and I kept going. But again, it goes back to my downfall, which was I had so much pressure to like make this money and make a career out of it that it forced me to insomnia and it forced me to having poor relationships. Like it forced me to burn out. So it was like this cycle. And so it caught, it led, it led me to success, but also like it was my downfall. Where does that entrepreneurial streak come from? Cause that theme's come up a few times in this conversation, whether it's how you managed your triathlon career to starting your own business with your husband, Matt, to support your current lifestyle. Yeah, I think because my parents are very traditional, like nine to five job, have their 401k, have their retirement, have their health insurance. And I always like didn't want that. I didn't want that traditional type thing. I wanted to do things on my own terms. I didn't want to have a boss. I've always wanted to make it somehow without having, not, not having work, but like doing my own work, right? And doing what I wanted to do. Uh and so I think I saw my parents in this traditional role, like my whole life. And I didn't want that. Like they didn't seem happy doing that. They still don't seem happy doing in that traditional role. And it was hard for them to accept that, oh, Lauren's going a different route. And that was hard for them. But then I became successful in triathlon and I made, you know, a good living for myself. So like, then they were like, oh, okay, it's fine. <laughs> oh, so, so you've always been a little bit of a black sheep. Yeah, hence the name of our coaching company. Ah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm making that connection now. I mean, obviously, I knew that was the name of your endurance sports coaching company, and I know a bit about your husband, Matt's story, who I should get on this podcast to yes. tell it because it's pretty fascinating on its own, but I just kind of clicked those pieces together right there. Exactly, and with the... Um yeah, for all listeners, our triathlon coaching company is Black Sheep Endurance. And uh, yeah, with my USADA violation too, you know, we were like, this is a great name for us. So I've always gone the other way. I've always like been like that. And I probably will always be like that. I hope my son is not like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's just, yeah, like theme of this podcast is it's led me to success and it's led me to failure, right? But you figure it out and like you just handle the whatever you're given, right? Like, and you figure it out. And that's what I've been really good at just navigating like what cards I'm dealt and how, how can I make the best of that? So with this running career thing, right? Like I get a shot at the Olympic trials and we'll see where it goes. You know, like, we'll see how I do there. If I have opportunities, if I don't have opportunities and I'll just, you know, make the decision from there that's best for me and my family. A couple more questions before we wrap up this conversation. You spent 10 years as a professional triathlete putting in, as you described earlier, up to 25 hour training weeks after 25 hour training weeks, running especially the type of running that you're doing, it's like a third of that, maybe, at best. How much has that base of work that you put in as a triathlete contributed to your current success or at least the rapid rise that you've experienced in the last few months as a runner? Yeah, it's it's a ton. Um, look, I had a huge aerobic engine, like a huge base, but I never had that fine tuning or the speed aspect of that. And even as I was pregnant and returning 
you know, back to exercise after I had my child, I kept running very easy, very, you know, low heart rate, big volume. And, um, I just need, I was very flat. So I have that, especially for the 10 K I have that aerobic base. Like I'm not going to fatigue over the 10 K, but I didn't have that speed and I didn't have that pop. And I would say I still am working on that. Right. So, um, all I needed to do was add a little speed. I mean, I, I train nine to nine and a half hours a week and that's it. Um, two speed workouts and I haven't run over 12 miles in three years. Uh, so it's not like I'm doing this crazy training or anything. It's just a huge base and people are like, Oh, Lauren's this great runner now. Like how'd she get there? Well, they don't know that did the 10 years of 25 hours a week I was doing. And that really is showing up now. I mean, I wouldn't be here without that. Like that was huge, huge. Last question, looking ahead to the trials at the end of this month, you touched on it earlier on in this conversation, but what would be a great day for you in Eugene? A great day for me would be to run in that front pack of my heat, run under 32 minutes. Um, I mean, a great day would be get the Olympic standard 3125. And, uh, selfishly, I really want to have a good battle with Gwen Jorgensen, uh, another triathlete racing. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I love Gwen, but like, of course, like she's always been an idol to me. So I want to give well, her the two of you train together for a period of time. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I helped train her for the London Olympics in 2012. I lived with her mm-hmm. and was her training partner. Um, and she was actually my first pro triathlon race. So it's all kind of full circle here, you know, and I mean, Gwen's a phenomenal runner, like, but it would be awesome to like actually race her because I, I never thought I would be in that situation. So, you know, to actually be racing her man versus man, that's kind of cool, you know? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, my goal, those are my goals. And, uh, the, the trials are really weird this year. There's two heats, but they take the top three fastest times. So my heat, even though I'm probably going to be in the slower heat, it's going to be pretty fast. Like no one's saving it for tactics. It's going to be hot from the gun. So I need to be ready for that. And I will be ready for that. I love it. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up this conversation. Lauren Hurley, always fun to talk to you. It was great to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. The Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is my new favorite running shoe. It's super light, it's incredibly responsive, and offers good protection underfoot. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I will be using it all the time. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you.
If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 